Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. As any president's term comes to an end, it's not unusual for them to try to check last-minute items off their list, to try in an administration's final weeks to get as much done to serve their agenda as possible. And we're seeing quite a bit of action from the Trump administration. Some of their actions are an effort to push conservative policies, but other actions seem less like standard practice for end-of-term goals. They're trying to push through executive orders around immigration, trying to lock in oil drilling rights in the Arctic, and trying to solidify China trade policy. But they've also made more drastic moves. Trump has fired the Secretary of Defense and other military officials, and that new leadership announced plans to pull troops out of Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia quickly. Trump fired a top election security official who said the election was highly secure, countering Trump's crusade to claim the election was rigged. And perhaps most critically, Trump is hindering a smooth transition of information and resources for our nation's COVID-19 response, even as we hit the grim milestone of 250,000 Americans dead from the virus. So are these major moves during a president's lame duck period unprecedented? What about throwing up roadblocks for an incoming president? Have we seen that before? And with a nation in crisis as COVID-19 cases and deaths rise across the country, how will Trump's actions and inactions prepare the Biden administration? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. As we look at this moment, a new wave of coronavirus infections, an economy that is yet to recover, and a president pushing through his own agenda as he refuses to concede the election and cooperate in a transition, I wanted to understand more about how this all might play out. Later in this episode, I talked to Post reporter Yasmin Abutaleb about what the Trump administration is doing and not doing during this period, around the coronavirus specifically. But first, I wanted to know how unusual is it for a president to push his own agenda during a lame duck period? What can history tell us? I turned to Jeremy Siri, a professor of history and public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, to see if he could offer any examples from the past that provide lessons or analogies to what we're seeing from the White House today. The closest analogy we have is Herbert Hoover, after he was defeated by Franklin Roosevelt in the 1932 election, refused to recognize that the public had voted against his economic policies. And he used his last then four months in office, because the inauguration was in March, Hoover used his last four months in office to do everything he could to push his own policies, to refuse to cooperate with Franklin Roosevelt's transition team that wanted to implement the beginnings of the New Deal. And historians have long argued that the Great Depression led to many thousands of more job losses and perhaps even deaths because of Hoover's refusal to cooperate with the incoming administration. I want to dive a little bit more into Hoover, but before we get there, it's worth noting that 
the relationship between Hoover and Roosevelt, that transition happened before the Presidential Transition Act of 1963, before sort of norms were set in place. So is it really comparable to a moment like today? Is it a fair analogy? Well, in some ways, it's not a fair analogy because we did not have the legal structure we have in place today. Uh, it was more a norm of behavior, and it was a norm at that time because the government was a lot smaller. There was less to put into place than there is now. For example, we did not have the national security apparatus that we have today. We did not have someone carrying a nuclear football around as we do today because there were no nuclear weapons. But I do think it's relevant because I think the key point here is that one of the central elements of our democracy is the recognition that that when you lose an election, it is your obligation to maintain and support the continuity of government. Just because you have lost doesn't mean you can burn everything down. And we have not had a president who acted that way. We have had other presidents who have pursued last-minute priorities of their own, often pardoning some of their friends. President George H.W. Bush did this. But the notion that if I lose, I burn it down, that's one of the most un-American things I have seen in the study of our history. Okay, so let's focus on how Hoover didn't quite burn it all down, but he did do some things to put up roadblocks for FDR. I know you touched on these a little bit, but can you describe the most aggressive moves that Hoover made before FDR entered office in this transition period? The most aggressive thing Herbert Hoover did was he tried to blackmail the incoming president. He basically said to Franklin Roosevelt and his team that if they wanted him to set the stage and help them implement some of the early New Deal policies, particularly bank regulation, they would have to support some of his policies that they had rejected in the campaign. So he basically said, even though I've lost at the ballot box, I'm going to use the remaining power I have to blackmail you to try to do what I want to do. He also threatened that if they refused in the transition to help implement his policies, he would blame them for the depression, that he would basically say we had a chance to fix this, but the incoming administration would not work with me. He would say that as the sitting president who still had much more public credibility than a president who hadn't taken office yet. So did FDR comply with that blackmailing? No, he did not. FDR refused, and he began a process of reaching out to members of Congress and uh, speaking to the public uh, about these issues. He did not renounce Hoover, and he did not call it blackmail. FDR, in classic FDR fashion, uh, ignored the things Hoover said and reached out to other members of Congress. And one big difference between 1933 and where we are today is there were many members of Congress, including Republicans from Hoover's party, who were willing to work with the incoming administration in advance and were not denying the reality of the election. What do we know about what was motivating Hoover at the time? Why did he want to make things so much harder for Roosevelt? Hoover was a real believer. This was a man who really had been a great policy figure throughout his life. He's the person who oversaw food relief to Europe after World War I. He created the modern Department of Commerce. So this was a man of great achievement, public and private. And he really believed he understood economics better. The tragedy of Herbert Hoover was that the Great Depression ran against all of his assumptions about economics. He refused to let go of those assumptions. He refused to see that he had been been right most of his life, but now he was wrong. Hoover was not doing what he did to try to enrich himself in his last months in office. He was doing what he thought would save the country. So similarly to what we're seeing today is that Hoover actually lost the election to FDR by quite a lot. 
I think so. I think Joe Biden has won this election by a larger margin than Donald Trump won his election. 74 electoral votes, at least 6 million popular votes. This is a pretty decisive win in a divided time in our country. The difference, though, is that when Franklin Roosevelt won election in 1932, many, many members of his party won seats in Congress. And they built a very, very large, one of the largest Democratic majorities. That did not happen in this election. And I think that's one of the big hindrances to Joe Biden right now as president-elect is that he's going to be coming in and he will still have a majority in the House, but it will be smaller, not bigger. And we don't know what the Senate is going to look like. So that does change the dynamic. So you mentioned that at the time FDR reached out to Congress for some help. Was Congress able to intervene in these matters back in the 30s? Members of Congress tried. They tried to speak to the president, as I imagine some are today, and they gave public legitimacy to what Franklin Roosevelt's team was suggesting. They held hearings, they engaged in public discussions, and they helped to build the groundwork for the New Deal. In March of 1933, just before the inauguration, members of Congress were saying it was a good idea, as the Federal Reserve had suggested and as Franklin Roosevelt's team had suggested, to actually close the banks temporarily, the so-called bank holiday, so people couldn't take all their money out and we wouldn't have these runs on banks. Hoover refused, but when Roosevelt took over, he was able a few days afterwards to initiate the bank holiday because a public consensus had already been built with the help of members of Congress. After FDR was inaugurated in his post-presidency, Hoover continued to be this vicious critic of FDR. In letters and papers that he authored, he compared the New Deal and some of FDR's ideas to fascism. Did his criticism have any influence on FDR's ability to govern even after Hoover had left office? It had some influence. It had some influence on continuing to keep alive a very partisan condemnation of Franklin Roosevelt. And it gave solace, quite frankly, to anti-Semites and many others who accused Roosevelt of being in league uh, with Jewish bankers and, and various others, even a figure as famous as Charles Lindbergh, who was the leader of the first America First movement in some ways. Lindbergh claimed, building on Hoover, that FDR was adopting these socialist ideas from overseas. And so it's not that Hoover was able to stop the New Deal. But he was able to keep alive a certain opposition and an opposition that at times played to some of the worst instincts of Americans. And then later on, after World War II, uh, after Roosevelt had died and Hoover was still alive, Hoover was a very strong activist in the more conservative wing of the Republican Party that opposed, for example, the creation of public health insurance after World War II. And so you could argue that Hoover did have lasting influence on some of our policy decisions even years after World War II. President Trump, unlike President Hoover, is a much more popular lame duck president, and he has considerable political clout still at this point. Could these factors work to Trump's advantage in his effort to prevent the transition or potentially thwart Biden's agenda? Might we see Trump's political clout really have an impact here? I think so. I think one of the places where Trump will have political clout will be in encouraging certain members of the Republican Party in the House and the Senate to oppose most of the things that Joe Biden wants to do. Insofar as Trump after he leaves the White House, continues to rile up these groups of his supporters through Twitter and other media. They will be people that he will have a chance to direct in where they give their loyalty beyond Trump. And those who want to do well in the Republican Party, particularly in a presidential race, will need to appeal to Trump's voters. So this will be a powerful stick that Donald Trump will have. 
What lessons should we draw from the Hoover-Roosevelt transition as we watch a contentious transition play out now? Well, I think there are three overriding lessons. The first one is the lesson that was learned in 1933 that we need to reapply, which is we need a shorter transition. We moved the transition after 1933 from March to January. The inauguration was moved to January 20th. I don't see why we can't move the inauguration to December. We don't need this long. The founders created a long transition because in the 18th century, it took a long time to get from Ohio or Virginia to to New York then, which was the capital or Philadelphia. Uh, We don't need such a long transition today. That's the first lesson. Second, I think we need to go beyond the Presidential uh, Transition Act of 1963. As we do with many of our norms that have been challenged in the last four years, we've recognized they need better codification. Just as we need to make it a law that all presidents turn over their tax returns, we need to make it a law that after the election, even before the state certified that a transition process begins, that it has to happen. And then I think the third and probably most significant thing that we need to do is we need to make sure that the Senate and the House limit presidents in this transition period. They have to be given more tools to do this. And I guess what I'm arguing is that Congress should have more oversight in the transition period than it has in the non-transition period because this is a very dangerous moment. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. As Jeremy just described, history tells us that a president's pushing his own agenda after losing re-election and his failure to cooperate with an incoming administration during a time of crisis, that all ended up being pretty harmful to Americans back in the 1930s. Today, we're faced with a similar situation, an outgoing president who's pushing his own approach and making it difficult for an incoming president-elect to get the information and resources he needs to address today's crisis, the novel coronavirus pandemic. I wanted to understand how Trump's approach in his lame duck might affect the country's path forward. So I turned to my colleague, Yasmin Abutaleb. Yasmin is a health policy reporter for The Washington Post. I think one of the things that's been most frustrating for health experts and doctors across the country is that very little has changed in the White House's approach to the pandemic since the election, even though we've seen the outbreak worsen considerably. You know, we've seen days where there's more than 180,000 new daily cases. It's typically hovering around 140,000, which is much, much worse than when everyone was taking this extremely seriously in the spring and there was a lockdown. We're not really seeing a lot of action from the White House. There's barely any talk about the virus. We haven't heard from President Trump or Vice President Pence, who's the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, about the enormous death toll or infection toll we're seeing every day. So I think that inaction is extremely frustrating and frankly dangerous to the course of the pandemic right now. So just to highlight the difference between Biden's proposed approach and Trump's ongoing approach, what is an incoming Biden administration hoping to do in regards to this virus? What are are Biden's pandemic-related priorities? Well, I think the biggest and simplest difference between the way the Trump administration has handled this pandemic for the last few months and how Biden has said he will handle it is that Biden plans to take this very muscular 
federal approach. We haven't had a national strategy from the Trump administration. It's mostly been states deciding and figuring out what to do. And the states mostly complain that they don't have enough money or leadership or resources to do it. This is one of these crises that crosses state borders. So a state-by-state approach just doesn't work. Biden has said he's going to take a very strong centralized federal approach, and he's going to invest a lot of money in things like dramatically ramping up testing, building out a contact tracing workforce, invoking the Defense Production Act to help resolve shortages of personal protective equipment, which we're seeing in many parts of the country again. So, I, I mean, I think the biggest difference is, is just that Biden is going to run, you know, a science-based federal approach with national leadership where states are following the federal government's lead. So there's a clear difference in approach, but is Trump cooperating with Biden's team in terms of sharing COVID information during this transition? I mean, I think we've seen across the board, not just on COVID, that President Trump has refused to concede the election. He still maintains that it was stolen from him and is fighting these legal battles across the state. And because of that, he hasn't allowed the transition to begin. And that means that the Biden team does not have access to resources, information in the agencies so that they can prepare to take over. There are some people who say the things that need to be done in a federal response are obvious. So the Biden team can sort of figure out a lot of the public health information that's public. But there is not cooperation from Trump administration appointees and handing over information. And, you know, they're not going to want to do everything differently. There will be some parts of the response where the Biden team will want to build on something the Trump team has in place. But it's really hard for that to be taking place when there is not this cooperation going on right now. And it's not just even the information sharing, but it's also these competing messages. So how are the president and the president-elect sort of competing around COVID messaging right now? Who's controlling the narrative at this point? It's a little bit of a free-for-all. You have the president who really is not talking about it very much. Even the really exciting and positive vaccine news that both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines are nearly 95% effective. You know, when Pfizer's news came out first, the president said it was a deep state plot against him and that they withheld the news intentionally until after the election. It's focused on how it's affected him and not so much what it'll mean for the course of the pandemic. You've seen the Biden team try to step in and set the tone for how they're going to approach the pandemic. You know, in one of his first speeches after being declared president-elect, Biden implored people to wear masks, to take it seriously, to say, you know, essentially that there's a dark winter ahead and people really really need to do their part so that we can get back to normal. So you see these really striking differences between how the two are talking about it. And a lot of it is just that Biden is talking about it a lot and Trump is talking about it very little. And what are the real life implications of that difference in messaging? What does it mean for the American people? Well, people really respond to what they see as the national message. Biden has this enormous challenge because, you know, President Trump lost, but more than 70 million people did still vote for him. And that means that 70 million people agreed with his message on the virus, that it's overblown or that they don't want to take some of the more drastic measures that need to be taken to bring it under control. And so you're going to see, I think most likely, President-elect Biden struggle to get people to listen to him and to trust the information he's giving people on the virus. You know, a lot of what he needs to do to bring the pandemic under control is dependent on people changing their individual behavior, you know, whether it's not gathering in large groups, wearing masks every time they're out, staying home if they can. These are things that people are already really reluctant to do and tired of doing. 
And if you have these competing messages, you have people who are just going to have two very different versions of reality as to what type of threat the pandemic poses and what they should do in response. As we see this promising news about a vaccine, is there an agreement between the Trump and Biden teams about what steps would need to happen to distribute the vaccine? You know, we've talked about how they have all these differences in approach and in messaging. But what about when it comes to a vaccine? Do they agree about what should happen next? It's a little bit unclear because, you know, the Biden team hasn't been given access to everything yet. But I think the vaccine distribution plan is one of these things where the Trump administration has been working on a plan. A lot of that is run out of the CDC. And there may be some changes in the plan, but I think most likely you'll see the Biden team build on what the Trump team has done. But again, one of the issues here is there just hasn't been that information sharing. So it's hard to assess the degree to which they might decide to do things differently. It's one of those things that's going to start happening soon. And it would be very difficult to build a whole new plan from scratch. So are there steps outside of prep for vaccine distribution that the Trump administration could be taking to put the Biden administration on better footing to come in early and and hit the ground running? Absolutely. One of the biggest problems right now is that the Biden team is going to need to resolve issues in shortages and personal protective equipment. So understanding what sort of capacity various companies have to produce PPE, what powers there are to ramp up production, where the bottlenecks are, where the shortages are, those are all things where they could be sharing information. It's the same on testing. It's the same on just some of the internal data that the government collects on the course of the outbreak and where it's expected to go. A lot of that the Biden team can figure out. There's a lot of public information, but there are internal government reports about where shortages and shortcomings are in the response that they could be sharing so that the Biden team could craft plans to address those. And then, of course, having that cooperation between incoming and outgoing team members just to help smooth the transition so that you're not wasting time after Inauguration Day just simply getting up to speed. All of these things really matter in an outbreak like this where every hour and every day matters. So the conversation we've had so far has focused largely on the relationship between Biden's and Trump's teams. But Trump's relationship with his own health agencies is also an important part of this story. You mentioned this earlier, but in a tweet, Trump referred to a medical deep state and accused the FDA and Pfizer of withholding the news about the vaccine until after the election for political purposes. Do claims like that from Trump affect the ability of core agencies to do the work that they need to do? I think President Trump has attacked the health agencies a pretty good amount this year. And I think the FDA, we reported, is just going to sort of put its head down. Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner, has told um, his employees to ignore the noise and to just keep forging ahead. It does affect public trust in the agencies. I mean, the FDA is going to be the agency that decides whether or not to authorize or ultimately approve these vaccines. When the president says stuff like this, as that they're a deep state conspiring against him, that's going to affect a lot of people's trust in whatever decision the agency makes as to whether a vaccine is safe to take or not. And there's already a lot of hesitancy around the vaccine, both the sort of traditional anti-vax wing, but also there's just been so much mistrust sown about the vaccine, whether there were political motivations behind it, and then whether you trust the agency that's ultimately going to make the decision. So then looking at all of this together, if the Trump administration continues to block a formal transition and therefore block some of this information to get to Biden about COVID and and our response, based on your reporting, what kind of situation might Biden inherit in January in terms of COVID? You know, I spoke with an expert about this for a story I did last week, and there's a real fear that, you know, if the outbreak just keeps sort of raging out of control with no real attempts to rein it in for these next two months until the Biden team can take over, 
there is a point at which it becomes extremely difficult, if not almost impossible, to start bringing it under control. We could get to a point where we're at more than 200,000 new daily cases. Deaths are going back up. You know, hospitals and cities and states are just going to be strained and not be able to handle this. And so I think at this point, it's very likely that Biden and his team inherit a crisis that is out of control, a deeply, deeply divided country, not agreeing on the steps that need to be taken to actually bring it under control. And that could take some time just to simply build the public trust to get people to take sort of basic public health measures that would help stem the spread. But right now, we just see it spreading completely out of control. All right, Yasmin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For the latest news about the COVID-19 spread in the U.S., visit WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. And one more thing. For the past few weeks, I've been telling you about a new podcast miniseries. The Washington Post is bringing you an Amazon original series looking ahead at what's to come as our country moves into the Biden era. In this series called The Next Four Years, reporter Eugene Scott tells the story of how he got here and unpacks what the outcome of the election means for the future of our divided country. You can listen to the next four years from The Washington Post exclusively on Amazon Music. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnik with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.